Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com. And we are the children of the 80s. Children of the 80s are back with another review of one of our childhood favorite films. I'm Patrick. And I'm Chris, the less hairy version of Clyde. Uh, and this month, we're getting down to some monkey business with our review of Every Which Way But Loose from 1978, starring Clint Eastwood, Sandra Locke, and Jeffrey Lewis. But before we get into our review of this classic 70s film, first... A word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Cool Refreshing Olympia Beer, America's number one beer for hipsters and orangutans since 1896. That's Olympia Beer. Fuck you, Pabst. All right. And Chris, do you have the summary for this month's film? It's a wacky one. This is going to be my comedy version of every Clint Eastwood comedy film ever. And I'm going to try very hard not to call him Philo. I don't know why I keep wanting to call him Philo, but what? his name's Philo. I don't know. The whole time I wrote this, Philo, Philo this, Philo that. I'm, I don't, I don't fucking know why. All right, Philo Beto is a San Fernando Valley truck driver who lives in a small house behind his ma, with his brother Orville and an orangutan named Clyde. To make ends meet, and because he likes it, Philo spends his off hours beating the shit out of people as a bare-knuckle fighter. He's so good that people often compare him to the legendary fighter Tank Murdoch. That, that name just rolls right off your lips, doesn't it, Patrick? Tank. Sounds like a, a sportscaster. It's, he could be. He's got the figure of a 70s sportscaster for sure. One night at a local at a local honky-tonk called the Palomino, Philo watches an aspiring country music singer named Lynn Hazley Taylor, because country singers do great with three names, uh, as she performs on stage. Afterwards, he buys her a beer. I'm not sure if it was Olympia beer because there was a lot of Dos Equis in this film as well. But he buys her beer and is immediately smitten with her because how can you not be immediately smitten with Sandra Locke? Patrick's 70s heartthrob woman. No. (laughs) (laughs) You've got a choice. Olivia Newton-John, Linda Carter, Sandra Locke. I'll take either Linda Carter or Olivia Newton-John. I'm, yeah. I'm fine with you. One of those. Okay. Yeah. Linda was part of seventies jiggle TV, so she gets the slight nod. So when Philo drives her home in hopes of getting her in hopes of getting laid, she says that she lives with her boyfriend, Shiler. Was that his name? Shiler? Yeah. The very masculine looking Shiler. 
and they need to be quiet shh, if they do it. Uh, she claims she's only with him because he says he's going to get her seven grand she needs for her career. At least I think it was for her career. A little unclear what she needed that money for. Uh, so Philo decides to call it a night because, you know, he doesn't need an audience unless it's the furry kind that walks with knuckles. Uh, some days later or the next day, I don't know, hard to tell, uh, two members of a motorcycle game, gang called the Black Widows insult Philo and Clyde at a traffic light. And Philo chases after them like a madman. He forces them to drop their bikes and flee on a passing train to escape his fists of fury. He then steals the bikes, which he repairs, repaints, and then sells. That money easily covers the seven grand Lynn needs, and he gives it to her in hopes she will ditch uh, her boyfriend for him. That's a good plan there, Philo. Later that night, or some nights later, I don't know, it's hard to tell still, Philo gets in a fight at the Palomino with the guy and his buddies. After he beats them up, he tells the bartender to call the cops, but guess what? The bartender informs him that he just beat up the cops. Officer Putnam, as we learn his name is, is pretty pissed about the whole encounter and wants revenge. Uh, his partner, Herb, or Officer Herb, I don't know which one it is, but we'll just call him Herb. Uh, he thinks they should just drop it because he's got a little bit of sense in him. The next morning, or some mornings later, I'm really not sure. I've lost track here. Uh, Philo heads to the trailer park where Lynn lives so she can finally meet Clyde. Uh, however, she's gone. Her trailer's gone. The boyfriend's gone. The money he gave her, all gone. Philo, thinking that Shyler made her leave with him, goes to the trailer park manager to find out what happened to Lynn. The manager says she left town early that morning before thanking him kindly. Did, did you recognize good old, uh, yeah. okay. Good old Hank Warden. Yeah. It's hard yeah, well, not to all the John Wayne films. <laughs> yes. One of the funniest parts of the film. Actually, if I would have seen a film with just him and Ma, Ruth Gordon, man, that would have been comedy gold right there. Those two, she just screaming about the goddamn ribs and him thanking her kindly for it. That, that's I'd pay for that. Um, Philo figures she's headed back to Denver, Colorado. So he packs up his camper and drives off after her with Orville and Clyde in tow. Meanwhile, officer Putnam is still clamoring for revenge and he and Herb do some sleuthing to find Philo. And when they learn he's off to Denver, this Smokey takes off after the bandits. No parallels there, Patrick. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the leader of the Black Widows, Choya, because we need a good cactus name for the leader, wants a bit of revenge himself. He and the boys do some sleuthing of their own and also learn where Philo's off to, and they take chase themselves, but not before Ma pulls a shotgun on the gang and takes out a number of their bikes. Those goddamn bikers, leaving their mother all alone. Along the way, Orville meets a young woman named Echo. What was her name? Echo. At a roadside fruit stand after he takes notice of her rotund melons. Very nice fruit stand. 
uh, she decides to ditch her miserable job and takes up Orville's offer for a ride. Oddly enough, she also offers Orville a ride of his own in time. Once in Albuquerque, Philo takes Clyde to some strip clubs and triple X joints, while Orville and Echo head over to Pound Town at the nearby Notel Motel. Good job, Orville. When Philo and Clyde get to the motel, Philo makes the two lovebirds help him get Clyde laid at the local zoo. Man, in the 70s, everybody got laid. And we're only 30 minutes into the film. <laughs> the next morning, they head to Santa Fe, where they are low on cash. Orville gets Philo a fight with a local whom many compare to Tank Murdoch. When we see Tank, they're really not comparable. At the slaughterhouse, where the boys fight, Philo whoops the man's ass. However, the man who booked the fight tries to stiff them the prize money. Echo whips out a gun and fires two bullets into a side of beef because the girl knows how to echo. The man promptly gives Orville the money and the group then head north to Taos. Let me tell you something, Patrick. Their route to Denver from Los Angeles is pretty wonky. I know it's yes. a film, but I'm thinking you took the long way. Yeah. Oh, at a campsite outside of town. That's Taos we're talking about. While Orville and Echo fish at a nearby stream, Philo goes for a jog along the quiet highway. Randomly, why Lynn is down in New Mexico still, I don't know, but she drives past him and only stops when she realizes Philo recognized her. Uh, having an itch to scratch herself, she drives him straight to Poundtown. Uh, 45 minutes into it, another comedy sex scene. Uh, while Philo acquiesces to the ride, and who are we kidding? He's in full plow mode. He still wants to kick her boyfriend's ass for shooting at him in Los Angeles and stealing his would-be girlfriend. Lynn convinces him not to do that before agreeing to meet Clyde in Taos the next day. Philo returns to his campsite to tell Orville the good news, but the next day at the restaurant in the Taos Plaza, Philo, Orville, and Echo eat lunch as they wait for Lynn to no avail because she never shows. I'm beginning to think she might not really care for this man, Patrick, at this point. Well, you're getting the clue that uh, Philo doesn't get through the entirety of the film. No. Those dumb boxers. I tell you, one punch too many to the face. But, you know, he knows where she's probably headed to. And that's them Rocky Mountains. And that's where they go. They make it to a lake. Not really sure where, what lake, but, you know, I'm sure Colorado's got a lot of lakes. And uh, as Philo fishes alone, our Keystone cops, remember them? The one from the Palomino? They arrive after overhearing Orville and Echo talk about Philo at a local bait shop. The two men spread out with their shotguns for some random reason, you know, around the lake. And I guess it's just to cover more land, even though they've got them in their sights. Why they need to spread the fuck out, I don't know. Uh, Putnam gets excited, though, and um, after he pulls the gun on him, he helps Philo reel in a fish he just caught on the line. That, that makes sense. It's also pretty funny, too, didn't you think, Patrick? This still is a comedy. So Yeah, big fish. 
25 pounder. Yeah. So Philo reels it in with the help of Putnam and slaps him in the face with the fish once he gets it out and knocks him into the water. And he, he whoops his ass too. Everybody in this film got knocked out for an obscene amount of time, by the way. Generally, yes. Yeah. Um, so Philo somehow knows that uh, the cop has a, a friend and he goes searching for Herb and like an ape, he jumps by uh, jump. Philo jumps him from a tree. Does the Tarzan yell and everything. Once he takes Herb's, when the Herb's, once he takes Herb out, he pushes the men's awesome truck into the lake. Can't believe these guys wasted two weeks of vacation for that. You think they have vacation? That's what they said on the beach. He's He's got vacation. I, I don't know why you'd take vacation time to, uh, I guess they were going to shoot him. I don't know what the hell they were planning. I thought you were talking about Philo and Orville. <laughs> oh, no, they didn't. They don't. Did they even really have a job to take vacation? Uh, if they did, I don't know what it is. I think they were pretty much stealing motorcycles and reselling them. Around this time, those wacky black widows find Lynn in Georgetown, Colorado, and stop her for a chat about Philo. By now, it's clear to even these boys who are not the brightest bulbs in the in the six pack uh, that she wants nothing to do with him. So she helps the gang lure Philo into their trap. Uh, when Philo spots her in town, she drives right past them, keeps on going. And for some reason, there's the gang leader standing at the end of uh, the alley. And Philo thinks it's a good idea to just walk down that alley towards him. Why? I don't know. But as he walks down this narrow alley, the rest of the gang closes in on him from behind and he's trapped. He's outnumbered like, uh, I don't know, 12 to 1. And some of those boys are pretty big, so I think that's like 15 to 1. But not muscular big or beer belly big. All of today's sponsored Olympia beer big. Uh, where the hell did I leave off on this sloppy narrative? <laughs> I don't know, but this this, this summary is going about as long as a film at this point. It is. So Philo, he's bare knuckle fighter he, he starts whooping up on their ass orville has seen the guys surround him and oddly enough in this small town of like 15 there's a huge garbage truck just in the middle of the fucking street and orville decides to steal it i guess they leave the keys under the uh sun visor because that's what you do in the 70s and he starts scooping up all the motorcycles he should have crushed them but uh, because they could have taken him out if they weren't so inept. But anyway, they spot him scooping up the bikes, stop fighting Philo and run after him. And he makes it to the, the little camper where Echo's driving and Philo gets his last few licks in and joins him. And I guess now it's time to go to Denver for the big exciting conclusion of today's summary. Patrick, you're on the edge of your seat, aren't you? No, I, I saw the movie. Oh, okay. Uh, Philo, once in Denver, Philo become, begins calling every honky-tonk in town. That's pretty smart. One of the few smart things he's done. Finds out where uh, Lynn's performing the night and goes to her show. Afterwards, he finds her out back with an, uh, talking to some other dumb cowboy she's taken advantage of. 
Uh, and the guy leaves so Philo can, so she and Philo can talk out whatever the fuck they need to talk out. Uh, she tells him that he's the dumbest man she's ever met. And she's been trying to ditch him since the first night they met. She then begins hitting him while screaming that she hates him and only stops when she breaks down in tears. Sandra has lots of emotional states. Do you think that she was acting at this point or this was, she was trying to take out her real life frustrations on him? Uh, it's hard to tell based off what you eventually hear the history of the two of them. She could have been, she could have been method acting at that point. Yeah. Johnny Depp and Amber Heard could take a note from these two. And that's saying something. So she breaks down in tears. Philo never defends himself, gets a bloody nose. Uh, she actually gets more hits on him than some of the other guys he spot in the film. A very wimpy Shiler shows up. Who, who the fuck was he? Was he her, her husband, her boyfriend? Do we know her brother? I don't, I don't know what the hell he was. Uh, it's not really important to the story. Oh, well. I need this in canon. I need to know. Like, all right. uh, He shows up, uh, but Philo, knowing he's been played, quietly leaves, whispers something into his ear and leaves. Uh, meanwhile, back at the no-tell motel, Orville learns that Tank Murdoch, who lives in the area, conveniently lives in the area, uh, is retiring after one more fight. Guess who gets the last fight of his career, Patrick? Philo. Philo does. It's a very convenient, very tight writing in this story. So they head to uh, wherever the hell it is for this last fight. And there Philo finds that Tank is old, overweight, out of shape, and some some sort of sports um, broadcaster. He easily bests the man, but as he beats on him, he hears the crowd turn on Tank. Uh, you know, the typical, you're old, you're washed up. That sort of thing. In a moment of humility, I guess, I don't know, in the 70s, it was cool for you to lose the fight and you still won. All of Rocky, all of Bad News Bears, all of whatever the fuck else uh, in the late 70s. So Philo drops his, his guard tank, gets in a clean punch. Philo falls to the ground, and while there, as the crowd cheers tank on, Philo gives Orville a wink. He threw the fight so tank can retire undefeated. For absolutely no reason whatsoever. Is that is that was that his reasoning? Yeah, I think so. It appears to be yes. The next day, the group and our scattered assortment of villains do that uh, drive of shame home back to Los Angeles. Most of them are shamed. Philo lost the girl, lost the fight. The Black Widows lost their motorcycles and lost their pride. The officers lost their truck, their pride and two weeks vacation time. Did I mention these assholes took vacation time off to, to go chase after final? Okay, just want to make sure. Uh, there's so much going on in this, this incredible story. I just want to make sure everybody remembers. Uh, the winners, Orville got Echo. The girl's so nice, you say her name twice. And she was, I think she was the better of the two ladies in this one. Patrick? Oh, absolutely. I'll take Beverly D'Angelo over Sandra Locke any day. Uh She's so pretty, you can't even get her name out, Patrick. Uh, Clyde, he got that left turn in Albuquerque. Big win for him. And Ma finally got her goddamn driver's license. Yay, Ma. Stayed the fuck off the streets, though. The, the downside for her is she forgot the, the comb for her wig, Patrick. 
And that is the epic, every which way but loose, two O's. 21 minutes for a summary, Chris. 21 minutes. God damn. And the film's only one hour, <laughs> ten longer. Oh, shit. I was thinking you were hosting. <laughs> oh, hey, Patrick. I'm not hosting, but uh, how did this film do in the in the, in the theaters? I can't imagine that this being an incredibly uh, great film in terms of dollar numbers for Clint, but maybe it made a few bucks. Uh, Every Which Way But Loose was released on December 20th, 1978, a Christmas present to the world. The same day as King of Gypsies with Eric Roberts and Susan Sarandon. The same month as Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Force 10 from Navarone. The Deer Hunter, Superman, and Chris's all-time favorite romance film, Moment by Moment, with Lily Tomlin and John Travolta. Oh, my uh, God. <laughs> what the <laughs> hell was going on in 1978? There's That was an eclectic group of films. Correct. Uh, grossed $85 million, just over $85 million uh, in 1978, was the fourth highest grossing film of the year behind Grease, Superman, and Animal House, and in front of Heaven Can Wait, Hooper, and Jaws 2. Uh, adjusted for inflation, it was Clint Eastwood's biggest hit of all time. Uh, it was the first movie ever to earn $10 million in its opening weekend. It was nominated, nominated, Chris, for three, count them, one, two, three, Stinker's Bad Movie Awards. Uh, worst actress, Sandra Locke. She was beat by Farrah Fawcett from the film Somebody Killed Her Husband. That's however, an insult. <laughs> however, one of the other contenders was Lily Tomlin for Moment by Moment. Uh, she was also nominated for Worst Actress that year. Uh, worst Supporting Actress, Ruth Gordon, lost to uh, Joan Greenwood for The Hound of the Baskervilles. And Worst On-Screen Couple, Clint Eastwood and Menace the Orangutan, lost to, Chris, guess it? John Travolta, Lily Tomlin. John Travolta and Lily Tomlin for Moment by Moment. Chris's all-time romance film, so send him a copy because he's... He, He's already worn through his other one. I'm kind but, of getting choked uh, up just thinking about it, to be honest. Or not. Uh, the film was one of the uh, 400 films nominated for AFI's Top 100 Funniest Movies list. Ultimately, did not make the Top 100. It was followed by a sequel. Wait, wait, English. wait. Would you even put it in the Top 1000 comedies? Uh, no, not this one. Okay. No, I would not. Okay. But uh, was followed by a sequel, Any Which Way You Can, uh, in 1980, basically with the entire same cast. And Rotten Tomatoes has it at 39% critics and 56% audience. And that is the numbers on Every Which Way But Loose. All right, Chris, uh, we're reviewing a, an orangutan movie. I think this is our first one on Lunchtime Movie Review. It could be. Um, and Lord knows in the 70s and 80s, there was a number of orangutan films. There was, unfortunately, there really was. And uh, Chris Gazetta could not be here, although he wanted to review this. Jason uh, wanted to be here as well. He's a huge fan of the Clint Eastwood orangutan movies, uh, but neither one of them can be here. So we've got to make sure we represent for them today. So, Chris, what did you see this movie in its time? You know, it's funny because you and I kind of talked about this briefly off um, air about if we'd seen this one or any which way uh, you can more. 
And I can tell you that I saw this in the theater. I can't remember if it was the drive-in though at this point. It was December, so it might have been a little cold for for the drive-in. But I oh, can... I, I know I saw it in the drive-in and I know what I saw it with. I saw it with Escape from Alcatraz. I don't remember which one was the main film and which one was the oh. second feature. Uh, but I remember distinctly seeing two Clint Eastwood movies, and this was one of them, and the other one was Escape from Alcatraz. That, that's a serious possibility. But anyway, this was the HB, this was also on the HBO loop. And I know I was sarcastic in my in my summary, but this is I'm not saying it's a great film, but this was one of my more fond memories of 70s. I'm putting comedy in quotes because I have matured since then. But I remember enjoying it a lot back in the day. Now, I saw it at the drive-in. I know I saw it on television at some point, but this, I don't remember this being on the HBO loop. The sequel, any which way you can, I saw probably 50, 60 times. <laughs> I saw that one so, so many times. I, and I only saw this but a handful, and I have probably not seen this film since early 1980s. Mm -hmm. And I, it, it was quite shocking as I was watching it. I'm going, I, I always remember Sandra Locke was kind of a bitch in the film. That's what I remember distinctly <laughs> my childhood. And, but, I, you know, I was like, oh, there was probably a reason behind it, and I just, it, it went over my head. And now looking at it and going, wow, she was a really raving bitch in this film, like nasty. And why did they bring her back for the sequel? Because I hate that character and I don't want Philo to get together with her for any reason whatsoever. But yet it's Hollywood. I know. But, but yet, well, uh, Hollywood magic and, you know, a palimony thread of a palimony suit, but <laughs> So did you remember any of the film as you were watching it then since you hadn't seen it since the early 80s? I, I remember, you know, I remember him going to honky-tonk bars. I remember him getting in a few fights here and there. I didn't remember the Tank Murdoch thing. I didn't remember him taking on a guy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I remembered him chasing Sandra Locke, uh, you know, across the United States. Um, you know, I remember the Black Widows following him. I didn't remember the cops at all. Uh, but that's because they really weren't that important. And then, uh, you know, I, I remember him basically going home at the end, but without Sandra Locke, uh, you know, and then Clyde here and there, you know, like little misadventures with Clyde. But overall, I didn't, you know, like I, I remember the main point of the film or the main story of the film. I just watching it this time, I went, wow, this this is really not as funny as I thought thought it was when I was a kid and distinctly not as funny as any which way you can, which I, I, I like, even though I haven't seen that probably since the 1980s, I got to tell you, I have to like it better than this one. I really, really do. I, re I remember more funny things than that. Well, it's interesting because I remember this one a lot. If you were to ask me to summarize uh, any which way you can, I couldn't do it for you. Before uh, this, re before I resaw it for this, because I probably hadn't seen this one actually since the '90s, I, I could I could tell you the general story of it, and I could quote some lines. Um, I remember Ma screaming, "God damn this, God damn that," and the the twelve ribs my ass, you know. But I really can't 
quote or think of the overall story a, a whole lot of any which way you can. But like you, I, I swear I've seen any which way you can a hundred times as well. Yeah, it's it's the sequel I remember much, much more than this one. But, you know, this was a huge hit in its day. I mean, you made some jokes about it. Maybe it made a little money, but this was, hey, you know, Smokey and the Bandit was a big hit. Let's try to create something in that vein. And I, I don't know why having an orangutan was similar to having Fred the, the Basset Hound, but uh, they were Better went than a pregnant uh, elephant. Uh, yeah, that's true. That didn't come till later. And that wasn't as good a sequel as any which way you can. But, uh, you know, it this it was developed as a project for Burt Reynolds and Clint Eastwood happened to see it first and decided, hey, this is a good idea. You know, uh, you know, and, and and it's kind of his first real, real comedy. Um, and I was and, thinking, and, how uh, many comedies would you consider him in? I was when I haven't looked at his filmography, but. Off the top of my head, the the two any which way films. Bronco Billy. Oh my God! Yeah, I've only seen that, that one Bron a few times. Bronco Billy, uh, Pink Cadillac. Mm. Later, in, I didn't in the care 80s. for Pink Cadillac. Yeah, I didn't really care. Uh, um, unintentionally funny, The Rookie with Charlie Sheen. <laughs> uh, the last Dirty Harry film, The Deadpool, um, th those weren't purposely funny, but I, I think they could play as comedies because they weren't very good. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> um, it's hard to think about other. I think that's probably it. I mean, he hit. He he did. Who was his female co-star with Bronco Billy? Sandra Locke. Oh, incredible casting. Yeah, and who was Sandra Locke's? Uh, uh, the husband she was running from, Jeffrey Lewis. Well, there you go. <laughs> no, he had a stable of actors. One thing I one thing I like about Clint Eastwood, especially in the seventies, kind of going to mid eighties, he had a stable of actors who just continuously worked with him. They felt he liked working with them. They were they were effective. And you see Jeffrey Lewis in a lot of his films. You see you saw obviously Sandra Locke in a lot of those films. But you saw the same uh, actors coming back over and over again. And, and and I enjoyed seeing them. I think they have a lot of good chemistry. Was Hank Warden in any of his spaghetti westerns? I don't Ooh, remember. No, I, I only I think of oh. Hank as being in John Wayne films. Yeah, he's not in the spaghetti westerns, the Italian films, because that's entirely Italian cast except for him and Eli Wallach um, and Lee Van Cleef. Um, but... Was he in High Plains Drifter or Joe Kidd? I'd have to go back. I haven't seen those in a long time. I'd have to go back and watch those mm -hmm. to see if he has a small part in them. But yeah, it was nice to see. I mean, that was a a character actor from uh, you know the John Wayne days that he was he was a reoccurring actor in those films to see him get that little bit part in this, and and, and a an actor that I would say to me is the second most. Uh, a prominent actor that I think of when I think of Westerns is Clint Eastwood. Mm -hmm. Ruth Gordon. Oh, she was in lots of Westerns. I don't recall those. Harold Sorry. and Maude. That was a Western, wasn't it? No, no, <laughs> not, not, not at one of my particular favorites, but, uh, so Chris, I, I kind of crapped all over Sandra Locke and her character, 
Uh, I haven't even begun on her performance yet. What did you think of Sandra Locke's character and performance in this film? I didn't mind her, uh, her character. I kind of liked the fact that she was playing dumb cowboys basically to, to get somewhere in her career, get a few extra bucks out of them and to scratch that itch when she occasionally needed it. So I didn't mind it. And, uh, I think that it worked that for this tough guy being so naive to her and she's being this tiny little petite thing, she basically gets the better of him in this film when he is the big tough guy who gets the better of all these other people. So I, I thought her character was above average, but I think I actually like Sandra Locke a little bit more than you though. I, well, I hated the character. Um, I, I did like that the tough guy, got taken advantage of. I like that. I just, there was no, I, I, I just thought she was such a despicable character that there was nothing. I, I didn't, it, it, it kind of mitigated my joy of seeing Clint Eastwood play against type to be kind of the victim, if you will. What did he uh, see in her that would, he would drive across I, I four states. Oh, you're talking about the character. I thought you're talking about the actor again. Uh, <laughs> Either or, Patrick. I don't know. Well, I got to believe that her acting performance in bed had to be much better than acting performance on screen because I just, I've never thought Sandra Locke was that good of an actress in any of the Clint Eastwood films. And, and I, and I like the Clint Eastwood films of this era. This is my, this is my growing time of growing fondness of Clint Eastwood. This is what introduced me to that, you know, to that actor was, this film, any which way you can, Bronco Billy. I mean, Bronco Billy in any which way you can. I saw so many times, so many on on uh, on the HBO loop. That and Outlaw Josie Wales came on quite a bit as well. Also, Sandra Locke in that film. So I, I, think I we've I covered saw... all six of their films now. Is there one we've left out? I know we've done Sudden Impact. We're doing Every Which Way. We haven't done Any Which Way You Can. We haven't done Bronco Billy, and I know I've reviewed Outlaw Josie Wales. So. Uh, we haven't done the gauntlet and I think that's it. Hmm. I think that's it. But um, yeah, there's, uh, yeah, not, I, I never cared for her as an actress. Never thought she was that talented. Didn't think she had really that good of a screen presence. Um, and I, the chemistry between her and Clint Eastwood is not very good. That's my impression. But that being said, I think Jeffrey Lewis and Clint Eastwood have pretty good, chemistry at playing brothers and if you will I, I think they worked very well on screen brothers with different last names either ma gets around or they weren't really brothers yeah probably ma gets around that's what i would presume uh what about uh the orangutan uh, in this particular film played by manis uh, I, I believe they have a, a separate a different orangutan for the the next film but for this film chris I think for the next one, they have two, uh, kind of like the Olsen twins, <laughs> you know, he was fine. It's funny to me. The only, one of the things that I always associate with this film is right turn Clyde, but that's not said in this one. Nope. That's the second film. Yeah. Um, this one was the gun bang and, um, but no, I thought he was fine. I still don't know what the hell it was with the seventies because you've got these two and then you've got. Danny DeVito and Tony Danza with Going Ape. Were there other, any other ape films in the 70s that I'm missing? 
Well, you had BJ and the Bear on television. Well, that was a <laughs> Because uh, apes and truckers and CB radios, huge, late seventies, yes. early eighties. Yeah, it was it was kind of a, a genre of films, if you will, like convoys, looking the bandit films. This was, I would say, is kind of a a, a, a sub film of that genre as well. Mm-hmm. They're not really truckers, but uh, they they distinctly have you know have a lot of uh, trucker type elements, honky tonk bars, and things like that. And there's also, I think, a strong small town element to this film, and Smokey and the Bandit in many ways. I don't know if that's kind of an aspect of the uh, the truck driving life as well, but I got the impression they were in Los Angeles. D- did you? Well, they were in Los Angeles for the the beginning of it, but then they went to Albuquerque, which isn't, and well, it's not really a small town, but mid sized town. And then they're going to Santa Fe, to Taos, to uh, Georgetown. Uh, which I still don't, if I'm driving to Denver from Los Angeles, I'm going through Vegas, I'm going through Utah, I'm hitting Denver the quick way, and they decided to go the scenic route. I don't know. But they once they hit Albuquerque, they were in small towns. Yes. I, I think they actually went to Taos, because I've been to Taos. and That, that was looked... the plaza of Taos, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was going, I recognize that uh, mm-hmm. from being there so i was like wow they actually shot this on location so that's nice and that was santa fe that they were in for um where he and the ape were hitchhiking that was i recognize that as santa fe one of the things that i do remember about this film distinctly uh and was a little bit of kind of nostalgic for me was the music uh one the the Uh theme song every which way but loose by eddie rabbit uh, I remember from my ch- childhood, heard it many times. Uh, there was, uh, you know, Mel Tillis had a couple songs. Uh, take, I think one, "Take Me Back to Tucson" or whatever. Which, obviously, since I grew, you and I grew up in Tucson, it's had some significance to me. I remember the song when I was a kid, "Coca-Cola Cowboy." You know, uh, fun it, factoid for the listeners about that song is that in uh, junior high, we used to call Patrick "Coca-Cola Patrick" because he wouldn't stop singing that goddamn uh, song. <laughs> So, I, I, but the the being serious, the music I remembered very well, and I was not a country music fan in the day. Um, I wouldn't even call myself a country music fan now, but the songs I I knew the songs, and I know I hadn't seen this film a million times. I think mm-hmm. they were just some popular songs that got a lot of radio play, and I know my parents and my grandparents listen to country music quite a bit. Well, I tell you what. Um... I was not a country, I never considered myself a country western fan, but the older I get, more of that music uh, from the 70s, uh, you know, Mel Tillis and Roy Clark and uh, Glenn Campbell. And those songs, they're very nostalgic. I think it's because my parents, too, listened to country music like yours. And was it on Top 40 Music in Tucson back in the day? Oh, uh, probably. Tucson Radio was like, we carry both kinds of music. Is it country and Western? Yeah. And so a lot of these, when I hear these songs, it takes me right back to this era. Very nostalgic. And I like them. And I think they're excellent performers. And as soon as Mel Tillis started singing, uh, like you, remembered all the words, remembered the melody. And yeah, I was back in time. 
So it, that was something that I did enjoy about watching this film was kind of the the mu- musical interludes, and that then it kind of reminds me of, you know, I I think Smokey and the Bandit Two has can't remember who sings to the Bandit and Frog in the middle of that film, which kind of slows was down. Was it just Jerry Reed? No, Jerry Reed. Uh, Jerry Reed doesn't. He does the soundtrack. I think he has a song in both. Uh, his multiple oh, songs. Um... Yeah, but who the hell is there? They they stop and go to a honky tonk bar, and there's a country singer who sings a song to the bandit in the middle of it. And it was like, was this just a thing back then? Is we're gonna stop for a second for somebody to sing a song because it's almost like a musical, but it's more fucking irritating than a musical because even the a song in a musical usually tries to advance the storyline a little bit. Not so much in this one because there's a couple of songs in this. You got Mel Tillis, you got. Lynn Halsey singing a cut. I, I don't think she sings entire songs, but she does a couple of portions of songs. And they are her it, singing. No, she's singing. Uh, but they, they definitively slowed down the film at that point in time. I, as much as I like the music, or at least I was the music struck me as nostalgic, I hated it at, at the fact that it would just grind the film to a halt. Did you have any nostalgia for just like the overall look? I have a, you know, just as I get older, I have a very strong fondness for 70s and 80s films, you know, from my childhood, seeing the old buildings, the old cars. Like, when I see films in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, I'm like, oh, wow, those things are so old to me. But then I see stuff from the 70s I'm that I, I knew, and I'm like, oh, those cars are actually looking kind of as old as the 30s and 40s that I was used to. Um, do, do you look at that sort of thing in these older films? I mean, there's a, is a comfort that, I mean, these are the films that I grew up on that, I mean, they established my kind of love for movies and stuff like, you know, any which way you can much more, it, it, the sequel kind of more affected me than this film because I just didn't see it that much. But, you know, I understand what you're saying and there's kind of a look, there's kind of a, uh, to, the best way I could describe it is kind of a grittiness to the films that uh, you know makes me you know feel almost like guerrilla filmmaking, even though it's not really. It was it was a per it was they were intending to do that, but you know kind of there was so much about this film that just kind of reminds me of just kind of growing up, like you know his yard full of you know jacked up cars yeah. and that he was on and stuff like that it's like shit i remember people in the neighborhood with cars like that you know they didn't have orangutans but you know that was that was kind of the way the neighborhood i grew up in when i was a kid you know people did that did your mom have a shotgun like ma no 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 my dad did but he very seldom used it it's certainly not against the bikers not very often but those bikers are ultra ridiculous i tell you yeah, we haven't even talked about them, but I I remember them so much more distinctly involved in the storyline in the second film, uh, and they were definitively played much more for comedy in the second film than they were in this film, wearing wigs and having having to get like the paw taken off of them and things like. That. And so was Clyde. Clyde was much more a, a, a you know a, a comic relief than he was in this. I was surprised how little Clyde was used in the film for comedy. All right, let's wrap it up. What ultimately do you think of Every Which Way But Loose? Do you think it stands the test of time? Or is it uh, basically, you know, a nostalgic trash that we should never revisit again? 
Well, you know, it, it's nostalgic trash. Uh, I have a, this is one of my guilty pleasures, even though I haven't seen it in a long time. <clears throat> I, I actually give this like three stars. I, I recognize the story's bad and tacky. Um, you know, it's definitely very flawed, very um, dated. Uh, it's not going to stand the test of time for that reason. But as someone who grew up during this time, incredibly large amounts of nostalgia and for all its faults, a lot of fondness. So, <laughs> all right. And, uh, uh, I, to add before you say, honestly, I'd have to see it again, but I think I like this one better than uh, any which way you can. Oh, well, once again, I haven't seen any which way you can for probably a, close to 35 years, maybe approaching 40 years at this point in time. Although I saw it a lot. I remember liking it much better. I even remember in the day seeing both of these films. I think they had a double feature on HBO where they played them back to back. They probably and, did. Yeah, like Saturday Night Clint or whatever. And, you know, go ahead and make his Saturday. Um, but it was, uh, I, I remember watching them close in time as a kid and saying I didn't like this one as much as I liked Any Which Way You Can, which I thought was a much more pure comedy. Uh, I, I think this is kind of nostalgic trash. I did not enjoy it as much as I was hoping to when I watched it. And I love Clint Eastwood. I really, really do. And especially in this era, he was one of my favorite actors. Uh, and I just did not take a lot of pleasure in watching it. I thought that the, the storyline was threadbare. I mean, it was, you had about an hour's worth of plot for this film and that's stretching that. It, it, and it was a two hour film almost. Yeah, correct. It just didn't, it just did not, it just drugged for me because, you know, we had the, the constant honky tonk songs and, and, you know, him chasing her someplace and like the, really uninteresting to me and wasn't really important to moving the story along. I mean, it could have been a tighter film, a much a better edited film and possibly been even funnier uh, if they would have just focused on what they needed to focus on. But ultimately I hated the Sandra Locke character. And because that, you know, I, I like the idea that Clint Eastwood I think it's played for a patsy or uh, not so much a patsy, but a fool uh, you know, at the end of the film, it's just, she's, she's so despicable. I'm like, I, I have more sympathy for him than, uh, you know, than enjoying the comedy element of him kind of playing against type. So I didn't, ultimately, I did not think this stands the test of time. It's not one I would want to see. I would like to review any which way you can sometime in the near future so I can kind of go back and see if that one stands up as well as it, as I think it does. But I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to like that one better. We should add it to the list. <laughs> You know, uh, and to ask the important questions here, in the pantheon of Clint and Sandra films, is this a top half or bottom half film? Ooh, let me think this. Uh, so we got uh, Outlaw Josie Wales, The Gauntlet, um, Every Which Way But Loose, Any Which Way You Can, Bronco Billy, and Sudden Impact. So uh, Outlaw Josie Wales, top of that pile, easily 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 worst of the group Ooh, that's it's a tough one between sudden impact and this one i would say this one is probably at the bottom i would i, I haven't seen a gauntlet in a long time 
So I would say this one's probably the worst of the six, the bottom half. I don't remember liking Sudden Impact at all. I've only seen it maybe once or twice. So I'd probably put that at the bottom. Yeah, I would put Outlaw Josie Wales. I'd put any which way you can. Um, probably, probably Gauntlet. And then probably Bronco, Bronco Billy, Sudden Impact, and then Every Which Way But Loose. That would be my ranking. Okay. Yep. So bottom, just not only bottom half, bottom, period. She was in Firefox, too. She was the cold jet. <laughs> I'm pretty Whatever. sure. All right. Well, that does it for this month's review of Every Which Way But Loose. Thanks again for joining us and listening to our little monthly podcast you've had a good time uh, the fun doesn't have to stop here you can follow us on Pinterest and Twitter at MH Memories on either one of those social media outlets you can keep yourself informed about our occasional written film reviews and film summaries news on upcoming theatrical releases and trailers and information on many upcoming podcasts on the MHM Podcast Network and don't forget to subscribe to our account on YouTube where we're now not well actually we're not releasing our podcast exclusively we're back again once again on streaming services Make sure you rate our podcast, and if you have the opportunity, please write a short review of the podcast. Of course, we always like the reviews that are positive, but we appreciate any feedback that we can get from any listeners of the show. Well, that does it for this episode of Lunchtime Movie Review. Until next time, I'm Patrick. I'm Chris. And we got to get out of here right now, and you guys are invited. podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme song for Lunchtime Movie Review, Fireworks, is brought to you by Alexander Nakarada at SerpentSoundStudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Lunchtime Movie Review, the MHM Podcast Network, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted. Mm-hmm.